Listen to the words long written down When the man comes around Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum I hear the man come around. I see Nate walking across the back of the sanctuary. There's the man over there <laughs> in, in black, the man in black. All right. Good morning. My name is Don. I'm one of the elders here at Resurrection Church. I'm glad that you made the decision to be here today. It's exciting. So you never know what's going to happen when I'm up here because I'm not up here all the time. So it's, it gets kind of interesting sometimes, but we're going to have fun looking at a, a, a passage you may never have heard about in your life. This, this, it's a very, John chapter three, verse 16. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Yeah. We're continuing in a series, uh, Heeding the Signs from the Gospel of John. We are gonna be in chapter three, verses 16 and 17. So the ESV says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, as I was preparing this message, it became very clear to me that this doesn't come natural to me. It takes a lot of time to get ready for one of these. I don't do it very often, and uh, it takes reflection and prayer it takes uh, research, discernment. It's like what to leave in, what to leave out. Pretty, you know, you don't have anything, and then you have way too much. And what do I do with all this? And uh, it's uh, and in the process of that, there's other stuff going on in our lives, right? We have families, we have responsibilities, we have projects, we have tasks, we have things, relationships, and it seems like that was not going as well because I was focusing on this, right? So, and then I, I got to think like, why am I doing this? And John 3.16 of all verses, right? Why am I doing this? And I'm much more comfortable in a setting where uh, we have a community group and we get together every week and uh, we're just sitting around and we're having conversations and we're fellowshipping, we're having food and we're opening up the book of Philippians and seeing what it has to say, right? But I'm much more con- uh, comfortable in a conversational type mode rather than being up here. So uh, it, was, it was just kind of crazy. And, and then it gets kind of dark in my thought process. This is like, uh, like, really? Who are you? Who do you think you are up here? Because I go to work every day and I wear a blue shirt, an FR shirt. It's got my name on one side. It's got my company's name on the other side. Right? And, and what I do all day is maintain people and equipment to make clean gasoline and renewable diesel fuels. That's what I do. That's, that's my thing, right? It's not being up here. So I started to doubt myself, like, should I really be up there? Should I do that? And then I realized it's not about me being stressed out or overwhelmed or frustrated. It's about the furtherance of the gospel, about people feeling God's love as uniquely expressed by Jesus Christ 
about responding with authentic belief in Jesus, about people not perishing, about having eternal life, about making disciples, about having life, and having life more abundantly. Pastor Vance shared a verse with me that really helped out. It says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You know, it's interesting in this study in the chapter of John, how we contrast it to the synoptic gospels that we find several interesting encounters that, that aren't including in those, like John uh, talking with the woman at the well or the post-resurrection conversation with Mary Magdalene. But there's another one. It's the nighttime encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. This encounter and the conversation that transpired would shake the world and provide some of the most impactful and beautiful scripture recorded in the Bible. In fact, one of the fragments of the conversation would become the central theme for the Christian movement, and it's what's said in John 3, 16 and 17. And as typical in the Gospel of John, there's a lot of contrast. You remember a few weeks ago, Daniel was talking about how Jesus cleansed the temple. It was during broad daylight. It was pretty loud. It was pretty crazy. And then you transition into a nighttime conversation with Nicodemus and then you go to chapter 4 which is another amazing story the woman at the well it's just it's, it's pretty amazing how that works because you transition from the educated self-assured Nicodemus to the outcast uneducated immoral woman at the well so John uses these contrasts and he uses them often to remind us that Jesus meets every person exactly where and how they most need to be met. So John 3.16, what's this all about? What's the big deal? You hear it everywhere. John 3.16 is such a big deal for Christians because it gives a one-cent summary of some of the most important truths of the Bible. John 3.16 is the most recognizable verse in the entire Bible. This one-sentence summary of the gospel is the most famous portion of Christian scripture and probably the most often memorized and often quoted portion of the holy text in human history. John 3.16 has been called the gospel in a nutshell and the mission statement of God in redemption. It's displayed on billboards, t-shirts, coffee cups, bumper stickers. It's even worn on face paint under the eyes of professional athletes at sporting events. And it always lives up to its billing. It is as simple as it is powerful, and it works in whatever form is presented. For example, if you remember, this was a few years ago, but in the national championship football game in college, Tim Tebow played for Florida. And in that game that he played, he scribed John 3.16 in the eye black under his eyes. And during the game, 94 million people Googled that verse of scripture. And the story gets even more crazy because three years later, he, he's playing professional football for the Denver Broncos 
and they're in the playoffs against the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? And so during that game, he throws a touchdown pass. This is the last play of the game to win it. He throws a pass, completes it, wins the game. And the statistics that came back from that game are amazing. You may have heard this before, but uh, during the game, he had thrown for 316 yards with an average of 31.6 yards per reception. Their time of possession was 31 minutes and six seconds. His yards per carry were 3.16, which isn't really good. Coach, that's not a good average, is it? 3.16? Yeah, it's okay, but all right. But the, the numbers that keep coming up, everything had to do with 316. And during the game, over, again, over 90 million people Googled John 316. That's just incredible, right? Because of the eye black. And, uh, and then we, all, we also have the classic hymn of the faith. Keith Urban's song, John Cougar, John Deere, John 316. You may have heard that, right? That could have fit in with the worship this morning. Kind of a classic, but I don't think it's in the, in the hymnal in the pew in front of you. But anyway, it's a great song. There's a classic line in there, though. I spent a lot of years running from believing, looking for another way to save my soul. The longer I live, the more I see it. There's only one way home. And I learned everything I needed to know from John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16. Okay. John 3.16 announces the good news of the Bible in 25 words. You can even tweet the entire verse word for word without abbreviations. And we'll have it on the screen. It's in 25, 125 characters, including the spaces. You can tweet that. It's almost as if God's hand was in this whole thing, right? Okay. In those few words, there's a lot at stake. Notice the last seven words, which talk about a person either perishing or having eternal life. That's the important stuff, and it's relevant for all of us. When all is said and done, when your life is over, do you want to perish or do you want to live eternally? And it all starts with this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And it's an epic encounter. I mean, when it comes to conversation, it's the conversation. I think it's the most important conversation that's ever happened in the history of everything. So we always go the, like the catch, Joe Montana to Dwight Clark in the NFC Championship. We have the shot with uh, uh, Michael Jordan against Craig Elo that eliminates the Cavaliers. We have the talk in movies where Robert Duvall sits down with these young men and he has the talk in secondhand lines. And then we have the look. Okay, you parents out there, you know about the look, right? You know the look? Okay, practice the look. Go to the person next to you and practice. Just give them that look like. So it means a lot of different things, right? It could mean like, uh, are you serious? To, I'm warning you, don't go there, don't do that, don't do that. Or it could be, it could go to the point where we're just like, we'll talk about this later, right? And, and all those scenarios are not good. And it's, I, it just makes me shudder, go back to my childhood, thinking about the look, right? That was, I'd rather take a beating than get the look, man. Oh my gosh, the look. Okay, but we're, we're talking about the conversation. So, he's visited at night, Jesus is visited at night by a Pharisee, Nicodemus, 
who's curious about his teaching. And so they have this conversation. So, so growing up in Montana, if you were going to share a lyric or if you were going to share a story, there's two ways to start that, right? And one of them is, it goes like this. Here it goes. So, so if you, you know, it goes like this, this is how that conversation went. Nicodemus, he's not just a devout Pharisee. He's one of only 70 members of the Sanhedrin religious court who would have been highly influential in religion, politics, and wealth. He was the equivalent of a modern politician, celebrity preacher, and wealthy businessman all rolled into one. He was kind of the guy. But he was, he was like had questions. He had some serious questions because he knew that Jesus, that God was with him. There were some people that, could know, that couldn't walk, that are all of a sudden walking. There's this, all this stuff that's going on, and he knew that God was with him. And so he had questions for him. And so, so it, he went at night. I kind of wonder about that. Why did he go at night? Was it because he didn't want anybody to see him? Or was it because he didn't want to be interrupted by the crowds? Or he wanted time alone with them? But the conversation partly involves Jesus. He's kind of taking the wind out of Nicodemus's sails, right? Because he's definitely in control of this conversation all the way, right? And he's, uh, he's, he's, Nicodemus is struggling with Jesus' description of rebirth. Jonathan talked about that last week, hey, how you must be born again. And Christ explains uh, uh, it's about expressing saving faith in order to, uh, to be saved. And Jesus, he's kind of teasing him. He says, hey, you know, you're a teacher of Israel. You ought, you ought to know these things. And Nicodemus is just still has so many questions for him. And Christ also points out that those who resist mundane ideas about God will never accept deeper, more spiritual ideas. But what exactly precipitated John 3.16? What came ahead that led up to that? And they're seldom connected, but if you look at John 3, 14, 15, and then 16 and 17, all together, it kind of makes more sense. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The thing about Jesus was he always knew his audience, right? He's talking to Nicodemus. So he knows if he's going to make a connection with Nicodemus, he's going to have to share information that he could understand, that he could get his head wrapped around. So he goes to Numbers 21. It's a great story, right? Talking about the ancient Israel's rebellion against God and the story of how people sinned against God by cursing the manna he provided them to eat. So he goes back to when, when people are leaving Egypt and they're cursing God and his plan. How ungrateful, right? He's providing everything for them. He takes them out of slavery. They're on their way to the promised land. And uh, they're complaining. But isn't that kind of what we do? We kind of complain. Even when things are going good, they're not quite perfectly. 
You know, we got to eat in and out every single day. What's up with that, man? I'm so tired of that. And so I'm going to curse the guy that provides that for me. Right? So what does God do? He, release, he releases these serpents, snakes. The olds in the palm box, they know a little bit about snakes. There's a few rattlesnakes up where they live. But, but these were, these were uh, fiery serpents. When they would bite the people, they'd get a high fever and they'd die. And they realized that they, they brought it on themselves, right? So they went to Moses. They said, hey, can you, can we repent of what we said. We're sorry, okay? Can you talk to God? Can you straighten this thing out? Because this is not going well. People are dying. And what he does... God tells Moses to craft a bronze serpent and wrap it around a pole and then present it to the people. And, if, and when they look upon that, they'll be saved and they won't die. Isn't that the same, like the veterinarians use that same, I think. But anyway, but so there's a bronze serpent on a pole and the people that are dying, if they look upon it, and it's the very thing that's killing them. This is how important this text is. The very thing that's killing them can save them if they look about it and they believe. That's why Jesus came as the son of man, son of God, as a man to die to pay the penalty to, so that we could connect, make that connection with him that he's a man, he lived a perfect life and died. So that's how it all ties together. So it must have just been an amazing conversation. I would have loved to have been in the back room just kind of overhearing what was, as Jesus, he's kind of almost toying with him as he's talking about this, but explaining it to him. But then Nicodemus had to make that connection at that point and realize what, what it was all about. Right? And it all leads up to the gospel, the good news that begins with John 3.16. So there's two amazing truths that we want to cover today. Two amazing truths about John 3.16. The first amazing truth is that God loves the people of the world. Now that might be old news for some of you. Something you already believe, but notice something important in the verse. It doesn't actually say that God loves people, but God loves the world. And who or what is the world that God loves? The Apostle John has a spe specific group of people he's talking about in the world. He meant the people who did not believe and follow God. He meant the people doing their own thing. In other words, he meant sinners. So when John 3.16 says that God loves the world, it means God loves people who don't love him back. People who are indifferent. People who take him for granted. Avoid him, ignore him, or don't care about him or his commands. That's who he loves. Who else does he love? God loves the poor and he loves the rich. He loves men and women, boys and girls. God loves the older person using a walker to shuffle down the sidewalk and the newborn dozing in her mother's arms. He loves the strong and healthy and he loves the weak, sick, abandoned and broken. God loves the educated and the illiterate. He loves those from every people group, black, white and brown. God loves the self-discipline and he loves the addict. He loves the high and mighty, and he loves the low, powerless and oppressed. God loves liars, thieves, hustlers, men on the make, adulterers, pimps, prostitutes, 
whores, rapists, pedophiles. He loves the victims of sexual predators. He loves murderers, gangbangers, and those who abort babies. He loves their helpless victims. He loves the transvestites and the homosexuals. He loves the greedy and the lazy, the good for nothing, the employed, the unemployed, the homeless. He loves the deadbeat dads. God loves the divorced. He loves the happily married, the miserably married, the single, the widowed. God loves those who bow down to idols and those who bow down to sports teams. He loves those who are addicted to pornography. He loves atheists, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. He loves those who take his name in vain. He loves the world. He loves evil people. He loves his enemies. He loves those who hate him. He loves the gentle soul that wouldn't swat a fly. He loves selfish, mean, proud, vicious people. He loves everyone. He loves you no matter what you've done. So the first amazing truth we learn from God in John 3.16 is that God loves the world. He loves sinners. The second amazing truth that we learn about God is God expressed his love to the world by giving his one and only son. God didn't uh, love us in his own, in, in words alone. There was action. The most important demonstration of God's love to sinners is Jesus. Giving Jesus to the world was an act of radical, unthinkable love. So how unthinkable was it? Call to mind the person you love most in the world. Right now, whoever just came to your mind, the person you love the most. Maybe your parent, your child, your spouse, a friend, a brother, a sister. Now call to mind the person toward whom you have the worst feelings. Maybe you have an enemy, maybe it's someone you work with or a neighbor or someone you've never even met, a celebrity or a politician. But you can't stand this person. Being around the person is like chewing sand. Just can't stand this person. Suppose this person is in terrible need. Let's say he's in a hospital in critical condition needing a kidney transplant. It's the only way he's gonna survive. Would you be willing to help that person in costly ways? Would you give thousands of dollars to help that person? Would you volunteer to donate a kidney? Would you ask the person you love most in the world to donate his or her kidney? Would you ask the person that you love most to do this if you knew that the surgery would result in unthinkable suffering and loss? Would you sacrifice the person you love most to die so that the person you dislike most could live? Imagine saying goodbye to the person you love as they're going in a wheelchair and they're going through these doors, disappearing through these doors. And then later, the person that you despise the most comes back out of those doors. Would you do that? You're in church, like you don't, oh, sure, are you? No, would you do that? Suppose the person you dislike most was about to be sentenced to a place of eternal torment forever. Suppose you could rescue that person by having the person you love most in the world beaten up by sadistic soldiers, mocked and spit upon, then whipped on his back, chest, and legs, and then nailed through his hands and feet to a wooden cross 
until he died. Would you do that? This is what God did when he gave his son. God did the unthinkable. This gift is the greatest evidence of his love for sinners. It is the greatest evidence of his love for you. God did this for you. So we have these two amazing truths that God loves us and he sent his son. That's great news, right? But there's a problem. There's a problem here. It's the sin, right? What separates us from God is sin. No matter how good you are, every person is guilty of sin. And I I could spend an hour trying to describe to you what sin is, but I'll just leave it at this. It's God is holy and perfect, and we're not. And sin is anything that's a transgression against him. There's sins of commission, there's sins of omission, things we ought to do that we don't do. It's our thought life. But we're all guilty of that. It's like as parents, we have these rules for our kids, right? And they're not in place because we don't like our kids or we're just trying to be mean. They're in place uh, because we have expectations, right? And there's consequences. But the reason they're in place is because we love our kids. We want what's best for them. We don't want them to be safe. It's like if we say they're running towards the street and and we say stop, we want them to be obedient to that, right? Because it could save their life so they don't run out in the street. So it is with God and his children. He wants what's best for us. Since God's absolutely perfect, No one deserves to spend eternity in heaven. Instead, we deserve to be separated from him forever. No amount of effort, no good deeds, no money, no talent, no achievements are enough to take away that guilt. Fortunately, God doesn't want us to be separated from him, and he made a way to fix that. That's what John 3, 16 and 17 is all about. The The one and only way is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's some gospel logic for you. Some gospel logic. We got these four things, okay? Here's what you need to do. Be there perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the first part of it, right? And here's why we can't do that. Because of the sin, for all of the sin to fall short of the glory of God. But here's the one that did it for us. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, willingly goes to the cross to die to pay the penalty for our sins, was buried, rose eternally triumphant over all of his enemies, so that there now is no condemnation for those that believe, but only everlasting life. And then it goes back to John 3, 16. It keeps coming back to John 3, 16, right? Here's how faith in him enables us to do that because God loves us and he sent his son. Timothy Keller, great, great quote here. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The entire Bible 
centers on a single, surprisingly simple theme, that God loves us so much that he made a way for us to be forgiven of every sin so that we can spend eternity with him. Spend eternity loving on God, God loving on us. That's the essence of the gospel. So there's three key points here. Each person needs to be saved because of the sin. Each person can be saved, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The third point is that God wants each person to be saved. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but it is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we go back to John 3.16 again. There's a key word in there. It's called believes. Whoever believes. We must believe in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him is crucial. And notice that it doesn't say, that it does not say whoever obeys all the commands and laws of the Bible shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It does say whoever believes in him. That is Jesus. It doesn't say whoever does good works, donates to charity, reads the Bible, says their prayers every day, goes to church every week, shall not perish. It does say whoever believes in him. It doesn't say be good enough so that you deserve God's approval or you can earn merit with God. It does say whoever believes in Jesus Christ. No one can be good enough. It's all about having belief in Jesus Christ. However, some people have authentic belief and some just have head belief, like mere head knowledge versus true saving faith. Authentic belief is not just a head thing, it's a heart thing to truly believe. So what is it we need to believe in? We need to believe that. These five things. So if, if you're the engineer type or you're the analytical type and you're taking notes and you're thinking, okay, what are the five things? Here, I'm going to give you the five things. There will be a list. You can leave with a list of what you need to believe in. Okay, first of all, we're sinners who deserve God's judgment. That's the first thing. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, I kind of chuckle when I think about this part because I remember years ago when I was doing some evangelism training and I thought, well, I'll share this with my mom. Okay, well, the first takeaway from that is that it's hard to be a prophet in your hometown, all right? You don't have a lot of, you don't have a lot of credibility with your folks, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm still sharing it with her, right? And, uh, and I was sharing with mom how heaven's a free gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. And how we're flawed and we're sinful. And I'm, I'm using illustrations from this training, and I'm trying to really drive this point home. And, and after a while, she just reaches over and touches me on the knee. She goes, honey, honey, you don't need to convince me of how flawed and sinful you are, right? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm the fourth of five children, and she started talking about how uh, I tried to burn the house down when I was five years old, and, and she's talking about stuff in grade school I'd forgotten about, right, in high school, and even stuff earlier that week probably, right? But moms are tough, 
Dads are tough. It's hard to have credit. If you ever share the gospel with your parents, be prepared, okay? Because they're going to remind you, like, who do you think you are, really? I, I, I gave birth to you, and, I, and you caused me a lot of heartburn, and, but I love you, right? It's, uh, it's interesting. It's, parents are tough, but anyway. But the bottom line is we're sinners, right? We deserve God's judgment. The next point is Jesus Christ is God and he came to earth as a man. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. God sent him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made righteous. We must also believe that Jesus died in our place in order to pay for our sins. And he came back from the dead as he said he was. I think Pastor Daniel talked about this a few weeks ago, but like he called the shot, right? He called the shot. The temple will be rebuilt in three days. And it was. I mean, he called the shot. There, there's, he's got some serious credibility, right? But God shows his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. For if we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There's this amazing book out there. It's called The Case for Christ. Some of you have probably read that book by Lee Strobel. But Lee Strobel, he was a legal affairs reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He would say the only way to truth is through the facts. Lee and his wife Leslie, they were atheists, but his wife became a believer, became a Christian. And Lee, he wasn't good with that, right? And uh, he was really frustrated. And he, he met it with, uh, uh, it was pretty much... Uh, contentment, anger, alcohol. He wasn't good with that, but he had a coworker. And the coworker was a believer and it, it was just amazing because he, he, he hit a nerve with Lee. So what he did, he goes, hey, Lee, you want your wife back? You want your life back? That's all you gotta do. The whole belief system in Christianity is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It hinges on that very thing. If you can disprove that, that Jesus wasn't really resurrected, you got it. And so he, he takes the challenge, right? He's a reporter, so he spends months researching this. And he, he has an office away from work where he sets up a desk and he's got all these charts and everything. He flies all over the world. He's talking to people in Rome. He's trying to, figure, he's trying to disprove this, but he can't. And he eventually surrenders to the fact that yes, he did rise from the dead. And then he came to Christ. But he has a conversation with his wife that says, you know, along with the evidence that proved the resurrection, it's the transformation in you and how you loved me anyway and how you never gave up on me. You were living out the gospel and to me, that was as much as the evidence 
that I found. So if you have a, you have a loved one in your family that doesn't believe, that's a straight up atheist, you just keep loving on them. You keep praying for them. You keep living out the gospel the best you can as an example that they might come to. And the rest of that story is Lee Strobel. He goes on to be a pastor. And then uh, their kids, Allison, there's another, but they're professors at Biola. You know, just like, like because of, because that wife loved that husband unconditionally and, and because of what happened there, God used that family to impact the world. Because it's not only the case for Christ, there's a few other books that he's written and it's, it's just amazing. And he's an apologetics teacher and um, it's a great story. There's a, even a movie about it that they did a pretty good job with that one. And I totally lost my place here. Okay. Oh, there's a quote. The same, the believer in the, uh, in the movie, I, I, I remember hearing this in the movie, but it's uh, the C.S. Lewis quote that is shared. If Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. But if it's true, there's nothing more important in the entire universe. Think about that. If Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. But if it's true, there's nothing more important in the entire universe. So next we, we need to believe that I am trusting in Jesus' sacrifice and nothing else in order to save me. So it's the finished work on the cross. There's nothing anyone can do in order to be saved. The only way a person can find salvation is by accepting Jesus Christ as their savior. It isn't a call for blind, ignorant belief. It's an invitation from the Holy Spirit to submission and trust. James 4, 7, one of my favorite verses. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you talk about Tim Tebow with the eye black. I think he had this on his eyes, under his eyes at one point. It's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace that you're saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone boast. There's this reel going around, it's pretty popular right now, but uh, it's with Alistair Begg. He pastors a church in Ohio, but he's originally from Scotland. He's got this amazing accent, I just love him, man. Alistair Begg, check this guy out, right? So I'm listening to this, this uh, message, and he's straight up bringing it, man. He's preaching. And he's talking about how, how uh, we need to preach the gospel. We need to preach the cross to ourselves every day, all day. And without it, we quickly revert to faith plus works as the grounds of our salvation. Then he goes on, uh, there's an old EE diagnostic question, and he brings it up and he goes, uh, uh, if you were to die today and you stand before God, what would you say? And he says, if we answer that in the first person, if it starts with I am continuing, I believe, I this, I that, anything with I, not good. We're wrong. You need to answer that question in the third person with he. Christ did this. He died for my sins. That's how you answer that question. And then, uh, and then he just goes off on this uh, He's totally off base, but he, he goes, what about the thief on the cross? I can't wait to meet up with that fellow. I want to talk to that guy. Like, how did he make it? 
And he just starts going, and uh, there, there's a reel going around. It's pretty good. But he talks about how, uh, like, you know, if I get a chance to talk to that guy, I'm going to ask him, like, what's the deal? Because you were on the cross. You're cussing out the guy with your friend. And, then, you know, you've never been in a Bible study. You've never been baptized. You don't know anything about church membership. So, like, like, what's up with that? And then he has even more questions for him. It says, uh, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> and of course, the thief on the cross is like, no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> the doctrine of scripture? No, never heard of that one either. And he, eventually, in his frustration, he says, on what basis are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only answer. The man on the middle cross said I can come. Today you'll be with me in paradise is what he said. Because he saw his belief. And if we don't preach the gospel to ourselves all day and every day, we begin to trust ourselves. We're putting it on ourselves, our experience. If we take our eyes off the cross and live as though salvation depends on us, it either leads to abject despair or horrible kind of arrogance. And it's only the cross of Christ that deals with both the depths of despair and the pretentious pride of man that says, I can figure this out. I'm doing okay. It's only because our sinless Savior died that our sinful souls are counted free. And last, we need to believe, as best I know, as best I know how, I'm turning away from my sins. Repent. Repent means to turn. Do a 180. You're going this way, you turn. I'm repenting of my sins, putting all my faith, my trust in Jesus to save me. According to the scriptures, anyone can be saved, forgiven by God, and guaranteed heaven through faith in Christ. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think about the Philippian jailer. I think about the earthquake. It's described in Acts. And, and at one point after the earthquake, the prisoners are freed. He's, the Philippian jailer's thinking like, not good, not good. I'm going to lose my job and I'll probably die. I'm just going to take care of it right now. He's got the sword. He's rolling to fall on it, getting ready to do it. And Paul interrupts him and says, do yourself no harm. And the first words out of the Philippian jailer's mouth is, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. That's the first thing that came out of his mouth when he realized that he was with somebody that was with God and how to be saved. And that's it. Anyone who truly believes in these things is forgiven, changed from the inside out, and destined for heaven. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's really important to know that it's, uh, you know, 
we're pretty weak when it comes right down to it. We can't really rely on ourselves for any of this. And it's, uh, I love 2 Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Another Timothy Keller quote. Love this one. The irony of the gospel. If nothing else, take this with you today. Take this one. The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. The irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. Do I accept God what he offers? Or do I turn my back on it? And it's our choice. That's that's the way it's set up. It's our choice. We make the choice to do that. So a couple of takeaways. The gospel saves. We talked about that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Believing in that, we don't perish. We have eternal life. So the gospel saves. But the gospel also empowers We must never graduate from the gospel. It's not just a one-time experience. God directs his people not simply to worship, but to sing his praise before the nations. We're called not not simply to communicate the gospel to non-believers. We must also intentionally celebrate the gospel before them, living out the gospel, this gospel culture we talk about at Resurrection Church, living it out on a regular basis, being intentional about that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us in a prayer. And if you want to join in on that prayer, it'll be a prayer of repentance. And we'll have our prayer team up here. There'll be some people, if, if you want to come forward, if you want to talk to somebody, if you want to pray with them about anything that's on your heart, it's a good time to do it. Don't be shy. It's a great time to do it. And if you haven't put your faith in Christ, I encourage you to do that today. Today's a good day to do that. I mean, I I don't know if you guys uh, noticed how many times I talked about John 3.16, but it was a few times, right? But that is the gospel in in a nutshell, right? God loves us, and he has a plan for us. But if you haven't done that, you can do business with God about that today. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise you in all things. You are so amazing. We love you. Uh, We love the fact that you love us so much that we have the opportunity to spend eternity with you, dear Lord. But for those who haven't put their faith in, in what you've done through your son, the finished work on the cross, I encourage those that come forward to to give their heart and life to Christ, to to repent of their sins and move forward. And it's as simple as that. Acknowledging that we're sinners, repenting of our sin, accepting that free gift of salvation, moving forward. We just love you and praise you. Thank you for this time of being together here today and that you just lead, guide, and direct us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.